Well, good morning, and welcome to Hope Community Church. Welcome to those of you joining us online. I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could be with us uh, on this beautiful Palm Sunday. Um, you will have to um, excuse my posture uh, this morning. I've been dealing with some back pain, um, especially uh, the past few days, especially yesterday and still uh, this morning. So I'm going to have a higher reliance on this pulpit than I normally do. So if you see me like just not moving my hands from it, you know why, or if uh, I tend to cut my sentences a little bit shorter than normal, uh, it's because of the back pain. Uh, we do have Easter devotions um, in the back. Uh, they are colorful little um, booklets that Pastor Joel was able to obtain for us. Uh, they, I believe there's five chapters, one for each day. You can start the devotion on Monday. Uh, they are geared towards children, um, and then it ends on Good Friday, so come Easter weekend, you are well-informed or at least refreshed um, on what Easter is about, the significance of Holy Week um, and what our Lord and Savior has done for us. And you don't have to be a child uh, to grab one. Uh, if you, it's, I think it's edifying even for adults, and we have many um, copies, so feel free to grab one um, after the service. Um, an update on Ronnie. Ronnie will be returning to work uh, this week, uh, so the procedure went well. Uh, the... Um, test the pathology, pathology test went well uh, so she will be joining and serving the church once again um, on Tuesday and cleaning up the mess that Joel and I uh, made in her absence also for Good Friday if you didn't know um, our elder chair Matt he will be uh, Matt Van Manen will be preaching on Friday it's his first sermon uh, ever uh, he was very reluctant to uh, commit uh, by by God's gracious Holy Spirit, he has encouraged him and emboldened him and empowered him to give the message. Uh, so he will be bringing a wonderful uh, message, uh, Lord willing, uh, on, on Friday. So you can come and hear his uh, first, first ever sermon and pray for him. So especially pray for him, even if you're not going to be here to hear it, uh, pray for him. Uh, so before we begin, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. We ask as we come before you that you would forgive us our sins, and we ask this on the basis and the promises um, and the work of your Son. Uh, we trust in him. We rely on him. We know that what he has accomplished on the cross is enough, and we ask that you would uh, be faithful in that and that you would encourage us this morning, uh, that you would continue to impart his, right, his righteousness upon us, that you would give us the wisdom that we so desperately need and seek, that you would help us to be focused this morning, that you would help us to lay down our anxieties, our burdens, our cares, our worries, that you help us not to be distracted by the delights, the pleasures, and the comforts of this world, and that we would hear your voice and your voice alone. And that as we do so, Father, that by the Spirit we would be convicted of our sin, we would repent of our sin, that we'd be edified, that we'd be sanctified, and that we would glorify you in all that we do, Father. We ask this for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you ever boast about God? I mean, faithfully boast. Not in a way that is <clears throat> selfish or foolish, despite how well-intended the boast may be. Do you even know what faithful boasting in God sounds like? Consider testimonies that people have give about being saved. Th those testimonies, is a, they are a form of boasting. But do you know what a faithful testimony sounds like or should sound like? Our text, 2 Kings chapter 20, will start us down the path 
that will help us answer these questions by giving us an example of how not to boast. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open to 2 Kings 20. We are drawing nearer to the end of our time in the Old Testament. Our chapter today will wrap up our time with King Hezekiah, who is, as you remember from last week, Judah's greatest king. The events of chapter 20 occur during Hezekiah's encounter with Assyria. So the events of chapter 20 occur during the events that we spoke of last week in chapters 18 and 19. And we know this because in verse 1 of chapter 20, it says, in those days, and that's in light of the siege with Assyria. And then in verse 6, we have Yahweh referencing how he will deliver the city from the hand of the Assyrians. So we will read this week of Hezekiah's deadly illness, God's miraculous intervention in response to Hezekiah's prayer, and then we will read uh, of how Hezekiah um, boasted, ill-advised, towards the uh, Babylonians. Uh, The first part of our chapter provides for us the source of our boasting, and we need to keep that in mind. And then the second part serves as a warning of what not to boast in. So let's begin with the first part, verses 1 through 11, uh, by reading them. Again, this is 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amaz, came to him and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh, saying, Now, Yahweh, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of Yahweh came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of Yahweh, and I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs, and let them take and lay it on the boil, that he may recover. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that Yahweh will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of Yahweh on the third day? And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from Yahweh, that Yahweh will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps, or go back ten steps? And Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to Yahweh, and he brought the shadow back ten steps, by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahab. So here, we see the compassion of God on full display. Hezekiah is gravely ill, and he might not know exactly how ill he is, but God in his grace and his mercy sends a word through his prophet Isaiah to tell him he's going to die. And we need to understand this is an act of grace, though the news isn't necessarily good because he's telling him you're going to die, but God is in no way obligated to share with Hezekiah his outcome, his, his fate. But yet he does as an act of mercy. God owes Hezekiah nothing, but yet he does decide in his grace to reveal to him the state of his physical condition. As such, Hezekiah responds to this act of grace in prayer. In this prayer, he appeals to his own faithfulness, to his own character. And this is a standard motif in prayers of lament and mourning, to appeal to one's character and acts of faith before Yahweh. 
It is also in keeping with Scripture that God will deal with his people in accordance to their righteousness. King David states this truth um, in his song of deliverance in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 22, verse 21, where David writes, Yahweh dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. And Hezekiah's claim here of his faithfulness and his righteousness and how he has followed after Yahweh with his whole heart is not an arrogant claim. It's a true claim. We talked about this last week at the start of 2 Kings 18, when the first eight verses summarizing uh, the reign of Hezekiah, talking about how he is like any other king of Judah. He has been faithful to Yahweh like any other king before him and after him and all of Judah. He is compared only to King David. So Hezekiah is appealing, appealing truthfully and faithfully in this prayer, seeking God's mercy and compassion in this. In response to Hezekiah's prayer, we see God's compassion continue, uh, continue to be on display for us as he talks about how he has heard Hezekiah's prayer, how he has seen the tears of Hezekiah, and thus he heals Hezekiah. And he does more than healing uh, Hezekiah. He uh, reminds him, he tells him that he will fight for him as well as he tells him in verse 6 that he will deliver the city and his king and his people from the hand of the king of Assyria. And he will do so for his sake and for David's sake. Now, maybe you're wondering, does God's response to Hezekiah's prayer mean that God changed his mind? One commentator remarked on this, sometimes what sounds like a final decree is a subtle invitation. And God's action that we see here is in keeping with his character. Consider Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 11. If at any time I, that's God, declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Think of Nineveh when Jonah went. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil on my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you, devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. So there through Jeremiah as a warning and as an encouragement to his people, God tells him, hey, just because I say something doesn't mean I won't relent from it if the response is appropriate. And if the response is inappropriate, doesn't mean that I will follow through on the blessing. So we see the same mercy here extended to Hezekiah. And it's the same mercy that God, if you recall, extended to King Ahab. Remember King Ahab, evil King Ahab. For the sin that he committed for the vineyard, for Nahab's, uh, uh, Nahab's uh, vineyard, for what he wanted. God passed a judgment on him. Ahab repented and God relented. The judgment was still going to come to the household of Ahab, but not in the days of Ahab. And Ahab, again, was an evil king. Hezekiah is a faithful king, a good king, the most faithful king of all of Judah. Now, does that mean that every prayer of this type, of this nature, will get the result desired by the one praying? No, it does not. But if the prayer is offered up in faith, God will attend to it in accordance to his righteousness and and in accordance to your righteousness, which, if you are in Christ, is his righteousness. Therefore, you can trust the goodness of God to respond in a way that is for your eternal good and for his glory. And that may or may not be 
the answer that you're looking for, but it is the answer that you need. The compassion of God that we see on display here in 2 Kings 20 is not limited to King Hezekiah, nor is it limited to the Old Covenant. But we see this same compassion even today. We see it with our own affliction. God has graciously informed, he has graciously intervened to inform us that we are not well, and that we, being apart from him, are doomed to die. God has done this since he began speaking to his people. It was first done through Moses and the prophets, and then he sent his son who came to treat the sick, not the healthy, that is, the sinners, not the righteous. And now we have the Spirit in his word that does the convicting by diagnosing for us our sin and opening our eyes to the condemnation that we are under if we are found apart from Christ. Consider the words of Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we know that the word of God, as Ephesians 5 tells us, is the, Ephesians 6 tells us, is the sword of the Spirit. So the Spirit uses the word of God to cut us with conviction, as the people were cut to the hearts in Acts 2 in response to Peter's sermon. Therefore, we who become aware of our sin, of our damnable state, as we trust God, we do so as we respond in prayer. And we're not talking about the sinner's prayer here, not necessarily. It's not saying you can't say the sinner's prayer. But when we turn to God, when we put our trust in Christ, that in itself is a form of prayer because we're confessing our sin to him. We are repenting of our sins, and we're telling him, I trust you. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. We're seeking that. That is a form of prayer. We respond like the tax collector of Luke 18 and not like, the Pharisee, acknowledging our sin and our inability to do anything about it. Thus, we fall upon the mercy of God just as Hezekiah fell upon the mercy of God when he learned that he was going to die. And because we do, because we pray this prayer in faith in Christ, we get to experience the compassion of God, just as Hezekiah experienced the compassion of God. God hears us, sees us, he restores for us, and he fights for us. And maybe you're wondering, well, how is this so? Romans 8.26 tells us how he hears us. Paul writes, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. God also sees us. In Psalm 56, verse 8, David writes, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God knows when you lose sleep. He knows when you're tossing to and fro because of something, some worry, some burden, some affliction in your life. He's mindful of your tears, whether you weep publicly or you weep privately. He keeps track of every single tear that falls from your face. So don't be afraid to get emotional with God. Our emotions, though they are fallible, They are gifts. They are part of who we are. They were given to us for a reason. So let your prayers have more tears than words. It's the Spirit that's interceding for you. So when we are just groaning or when we are just weeping, as Hezekiah weeps, the Spirit will provide the words that we need, even if we don't know what the words are. 
It is better that your soul were wet with grief and sorrow than barren with apathy. A dry soul is like a hard cracked earth that struggles to absorb the rain of God's grace. But a soul that is softened by the springs from within is much more ready to soak in the rain of God's grace. You may not be able to cry in front of others, but at the very least cry before your Father in heaven. There is a blessing in it. There is a richness that cannot be explained other than to be known and felt as you do it. God hears us and he sees us, for God has restored us, and he has restored us despite ourselves. Colossians 1, 21, 22, Paul says, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. And that's Jesus who does this. Peter, 1 Peter 2, 24, says he, that's Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, we must not think this healing, which is, is the same healing that Isaiah is talking about, that by his stripes we are healed, is not a physical healing that he is talking about. This is a spiritual healing. This is a healing that we need. Our bodies are fading. They are perishing. We don't need our bodies to be healed. We don't need our pain to be taken away from us. But we need our souls to be restored to the Father. Because what we need is everlasting life. Regardless of what we have in this life, regardless of how blessed we are physically or not, what we need is our relationship with the Father restored. And that's the healing that Jesus brings us. That's the healing that we need. So when people tell you, when they point to this verse, or they point to the verse in Isaiah and say, see, Jesus died so that we would be healed. Don't listen to them unless they're talking about our spiritual restoration, unless they're talking about the new birth, our new creation, us receiving eternal life. And most of these people who say these things often wear eyeglasses and are unable to heal their eyesight. It's, it's, it's foolery. Don't, it's foolishness. Have nothing to do with it. And it's not true to Scripture. Because God has restored us, because we are in a right relationship with us, God fights for us. Just as he fought for his people from the hands of the king of Assyria, Paul writes in Romans 8, 31, 32, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God doing the hard thing, if there is a hard thing for God, which would be sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place. If God is able to do that, willing to do that, how much more so will he give us all that we need in this life? So this happens in two ways. First is by our redemption, by the Son of God bearing our sin on the cross in our place, by God securing our redemption, by justifying, sanctifying, and glorifying us by the blood of the cross. Second, God fights for us by giving us all the things that we need for our own eternal good in this life for the sake of glorifying Christ. Right? Romans 8.28, all things work out for our good, but that good is to be transformed in the image of Christ, is to be sanctified, is to be made like his son. So you will not lack anything in this life that you need for eternity that you need to have everlasting life, that you need to know and experience the joy and peace of God. 
He will provide that for you. So experiencing such compassion and grace, this ought to humble us. This ought to keep us grounded. But we must be careful. And we must not presume that we're always safe. See, often in the midst of God's blessing, especially in, in, in a land and a nation where comforts and delights are many, pride often makes a home. And even with Hezekiah, with his blessings, with his deliverance, pride made a home. So let's read verses 12 through 21 and see how pride made a home in the place of Hezekiah. Verse 12. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that Hezekiah had been sick, and Hezekiah welcomed them. And he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of Yahweh that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son reigned in his place. So here we see Hezekiah's pride. Think about this. Recall, First and Second Kings was written during, was compiled and written uh, during the time of the exile. And it, this is the, the exile of, of Judah in Babylon. So as the audience is hearing this, reading this for the first time, they're currently in exile in the nation of Babylon. And here they are hearing about this faithful king, Hezekiah, showing off all the treasures of his kingdom to their enemy, to the, one, to the ones that have ca- taken them capture and have exiled them from the promised land. So they're hearing this like, King Hezekiah did what? To whom? To Babylon? He showed them everything to the people who have enslaved us this very day? So to them, it's obvious that this is, this is not good. There's nothing positive about this situation. So you have to wonder, why is Hezekiah doing this to begin with? Of course, Hezekiah doesn't know what the future is bringing, at least not until Isaiah tells him. But why is Hezekiah even entertaining this? Why is he even showing off what God has blessed him with? He's probably seeking an alliance. At this point of time in history, Babylon and uh, Assyria, they are, they are prime enemies. They are wrestling for power. And, and Babylon is the weaker state at this time. Assyria is the powerful state still. Assyria is still uh, the nation to be feared. But Babylon is wrestling for control. And Hezekiah is aware of this. And Hezekiah is currently um, being besieged uh, by Assyria. So he's seeking an alliance. He, he wants friends, uh, but he shouldn't be. 
Yahweh has already said that he will deliver the city. Yahweh said he'd already always protect. He has no business boasting. He has no needs uh, to show off and to try to create an alliance um, by these means uh, with Babylon. So God tells Hezekiah, look, what you boast of, it will not stand. It will not last. Even his religious reform, the great religious reform that Hezekiah has established by wiping out all the false places of worship, to include the high places, his son, Manasseh, who reigns in his place, will essentially erase all of that good work. Just as soon as Hezekiah dies, Manasseh comes to reign, and then for 50 some odd years, Manasseh reigns. He is an evil, wretched king. It's almost like the reform never happened. None of it will last. See, Hezekiah's boasting here, it is rooted in the wrong thing, even if it was done, perhaps, with good intentions. And, of course, the text does not tell us what the intentions of Hezekiah's heart was here in 2 Kings, but we need to remember that even if it was done with good intentions, good intentions never excuse sin. Good intentions never excuse unholy worship. God's deliverance in our lives is not to be a cause for material or circumstantial boasting rooted in this age. Consider how most people testify these days. And please understand that some of these examples we do want to share, but how we share them with others matters. Consider when somebody says, I was drunk and then I came to Christ and now I am sober. I was unemployed. I was saved and now I have a job. Our marriage was in shambles before we knew Christ, but now our marriage is perfect, or at least it's tolerable. I was poor, but now I've come to Christ. I have known the riches of Jesus, and now I am wealthy, or I have more than enough. I was unhealthy, and now I am healthy. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, what about Matthew 5, 16, where Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We need to understand that these are works of righteousness that are righteous regardless of your material wealth and regardless of your circumstance. D.L. Moody uh, quipped about this verse saying, Lighthouses shine, they don't blow horns. In Hezekiah's case, he was blowing a horn. And we blow a horn when our testimonies are full of or focused on ourselves, on our circumstances, or our material blessings and not Christ. You can tell why people give their lives to Christ by their testimonies. And the reasons we have testimonies full of material and circumstantial blessings and not Christ is because most people go to Christ to be saved from poverty, to be saved from unemployment, to be saved from loneliness, to be saved from poor self-esteem. Very few go to Christ these days to be saved from sin. Very few go to Christ to die. I mean, who wants to die for Christ nowadays? Hardly anyone. But yet salvation is found only in Christ when one dies to self for the sake of Christ. When Jesus speaks about his disciples and us today being his witnesses, this is what he means. He means that you witness, that you testify by believing his word, by having faith in him and all that he has said and commanded. 
Thus you obey his word, and you do so regardless of circumstance, regardless of material blessing, and especially so when death is before you. That is your testimony, that you live in faithful obedience without fear of death in any and all things. That's the significant life change that we are called to testify to, to highlight. And if that's not it, then the apostles never got the memo. For all of them, except John, were martyred. If our testimonies could be all about ourselves and how our circumstances changed, or how we have been blessed materially by the great treasure storehouses that we have, then Paul would have stopped preaching Christ crucified, which is foolishness in the eyes of the world. And we wouldn't preach the word every week. We would have testimony after testimony. But we don't preach our testimonies. And it's not that they're meaningless, but they don't save. Christ saves. So we must be careful and wise in choosing the words we use when we do share our testimony. No matter how well-intended we may be, we don't want to distract anything from Christ. So how do we boast? And what do we boast of? To clarify this more, especially since deathly persecution is lacking and opportunities to be martyred for faithful obedience is not readily available in America, how then do we testify faithfully? And how do we boast rightly? Well, consider, what can you boast of? Is the thing that you're boasting of, will it last? The things that Hezekiah boasted of cannot last, does not last, did not last. Ask yourself this, if the circumstance changes, you lose the job. You lose the wealth. You lose the health. Your marriage fails. If you are able to boast of these things one minute, but yet you can still lose it, then it wasn't rooted in God. And it's not the right thing to boast about. Jeremiah 9, verses 23-24, Thus says Yahweh, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might or his health. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares Yahweh. Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, 17, 18 sums it up by saying, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Our boasting ought to be rooted in God and the work he has done and continues to do in us. Yes, that may mean we speak of being sober, right? It's okay to speak of that, but how we speak of it is important. The testimony is not focused on the fact that you are sober. The testimony is focused on what Christ did on the cross, that Christ has now become your satisfaction, not the bottle, that Christ has now become your joy, not the sin that you once loved to engage with. What we're boasting is that Christ has become our everything as he frees us from the worries and the desires of this life. Hezekiah, if any boasting was to be done, should have focused on God's faithfulness, on his righteousness, on his covenantal steadfast love that he has exhibited to Hezekiah time and time again. It should not have been focused on the treasures. Hezekiah should have boasted to the Babylonians that he didn't need them, not a smug or arrogant or rude way, 
but with gentleness, politeness, with respect, by saying, it's great that you're here, but just so you know, I don't need this alliance. I have a mighty God who loves me, who, serve, who I serve, and who is faithful. He's a God of righteousness and justice, and he's a powerful God. He's the one true God, so I don't need a nation to ally with us. So if you want an alliance, I'm not going to give you anything. doesn't mean we can't have the, the alliance, but I'm not going to be dependent on you. And I'm not going to concede anything to you. That would have been a better boast than look at what I have to offer. Look at what God has done for me and for my kingdom. We are a worthy nation to be allied with. Likewise, our testimonies ought to be rooted in the same truth. The character, the nature of who God is and what he has done. Whatever God may have granted us in this life better be understood as fleeting gifts. And what we want to boast in is the eternal gift he has given us, which is eternal life. All things are secondary. Consider the testimony of John Newton in his hymn, Amazing Grace. If you don't know who John Newton is, he wrote Amazing Grace, as a hymn that most of us know. He was a former slave boat captain who came to Christ. And near the end of his life, he became blind, physically blind, could not see. If you recall in the hymn, Amazing Grace, he talks about how he was blind, but now he sees. He says, I was blind, but now I see. So how can a physically blind man still sing these words? How can he boast of this? Well, because he's not talking about his physical reality. He's not talking about a circumstantial reality in this age. He's talking about a spiritual reality, a spiritual circumstance in eternity in the eyes of God. Near the end of his life, as his memory waned, Newton testified, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. That's the testimony that we need. That's the testimony that we need to hear over and over and over again. This is a testimony that's focused on the amazing grace of God. It's not about circumstances. It's not about material things. And again, your testimony does not save people. So when we boast, let's boast rightly. And it's okay to acknowledge the good things that God has given us, but they have their place. The good things that God has blessed us with, they are mere trinkets compared to the true gift that we have received from him. Many people have trinkets, but yet they lack the real prize. Just because a person has many shiny and grand things does not make one saved. So why boast of the things that those who are damned, that those who are lost, that those who are going to hell, if they can boast of it, why do we boast of it? I have a job. Well, the lost get jobs too. They get wealthy. They get healthy. So why do we boast as if it's a special thing? We need to, spo- we need to boast about what is truly special, everlasting life, sinners being redeemed. And this comes from the word of God and this points us to the cross, which makes it possible. Again, Your testimony doesn't save, but your testimony can point to the one who does save. I've attended many church planning conferences and just uh, church conferences uh, that talk about how to reach the lost, and they will almost always say, make sure you have time for testimonies, because when you have testimonies and people share, that's when the magic happens. That's when the power happens. That's when people come to know Christ. Well, if that's the case, what am I doing all the other Sundays? Why am I wasting time preaching if people come to Christ simply by testimonies? But it's not true. 
That's not how it is. That's how the world likes it. Because often when we give a testimony, we don't talk about the wrath of God. We don't talk about his holiness. We don't talk about his word. We don't talk about obedience. We talk about the good things that God has done for us. We talk about how he's blessed us materially or circumstantially. We rarely talk about Christ, truly Christ. And he is what saves. That's why Paul reminds us, we preach Christ crucified. The gospel is the power of God, not your testimony. The gospel, the work of Christ, is what saves all. Again, and I know this isn't very American of me, but you're not the good news. Christ is the good news. And praise God. I mean, that should be like, oh, good, I, I, I can witness. Because I'm not worried about my testimony. I'm not worried that I don't have this, this uh, Hollywood-style uh, testimony that can really draw people in and move people emotionally. Yeah, because it's not about you. Christ, his testimony is the testimony you're sharing, what he has done, what God has done. That's, it's already written for you. The script has been given to you because it's happened. It's recorded for you by his word. Hence why we need to abide in the word of God and know the word of God. We rely on testimonies when we don't know the word of God because we're like, I don't know what else to say, so I'm just going to say this. Know the word of God. Abide in it so he will abide in you and reveal himself to you. Then you will have no problem sharing the gospel. And you will see the word of God and you will sow it and you will reap it and you will see the power of God work in ways that you never knew. Focus on the unseen. Focus on the eternal. Boast in that. Boast in Christ. For without Christ you are and have nothing. For you and it will not last. If you're outside of Christ, you will fade away, you will perish. But in Christ, you will endure through this age and through the next age. And the next age has no end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. Thank you for allowing us to look back through the time of history and and to learn from Hezekiah's uh, failing here, despite his faithfulness. We thank you for your faithfulness, that despite our failings, you are faithful to us, and you are patient with us. We thank you for your divine word that you've given us and preserved for us over the centuries so that we may learn, that we may grow in grace and truth, that we can continue to be corrected, to be admonished and encouraged, to live faithfully, to continue to be sanctified and edified and matured, Uh, so that we will be uh, ready uh, when your son returns. Father, help us to be mindful of how we boast, of what we boast about. Help us to be mindful of our words. Help us not to talk as the world talks, but help us to talk as saints and those who who have been redeemed by the blood of your son. Help us to go to your word regularly so that we may know it, that we may abide in it, uh, that it may dwell richly within us, so that when we do boast, it just flows out of us naturally, Father, uh, both in our prayers and in our conversations with others. May you open doors for opportunities as we do engage with those who are lost. May our speech always be seasoned with salt. May we always seek ways to explicitly discuss the gospel with others, to share the testimony of your son and what he has done uh, for his people, for those who are sinners and cannot redeem themselves, and how he has accomplished that upon uh, the cross. Especially in light of Holy Week upon us and with Easter coming, Father, as we celebrate um, Calvary and the resurrection, help us to take advantage of this season, this time when 
most people tend to be uh, more open uh, to conversations about it. Allow your spirits uh, to use this time mightily to glorify uh, your name, to build your kingdom, to advance uh, your church. We ask that you would use us here, I hope, in that endeavor in this week and in, uh, for next weekend and in the days to follow. We ask that you would use all the churches in the Cooley region that are faithful to your word, uh, that you would uh, mightily uh, use them um, as they sow your word to the lost, that you would call many people to your name, uh, to your kingdom, for your glory, Father, not for our, ours. Father, we ask that you would bless the elements before us, the cup and the bread, that they would be gifts of grace to us, that they would remind us of what your Son has accomplished for us on the cross. Encourage us this morning. Help us to lay down our anxieties, our burdens, our sins before you at the foot of the cross. Help us to remember that it is finished, that no sin is uncovered, that every sin that we have committed, every sin that we will commit, the blood of your Son is enough, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So help us to have the confidence that we need to go before you, boldly uh, seeking help in the time of need so that we may find the grace that we need, Father. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your compassion. Help us to live holy lives as we anxiously await the return of your Son. And we ask that he returns quickly, Father, swiftly. And until he does, may we rest that we are yours and help us to just continue to trust in the power of the Spirit to do your work in all things for your glory. Father, we ask all this for your glory by the power of the Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So at this time, uh, we'll get into, uh, we're going to go into communion. So take a time to uh, pray, confess any sins that you're holding on to. Uh, if, if you're a believer, not holding on to unrepentant sin, um, and you're not um, in disunity with another brother or sister in Christ, that is, you're not holding a grudge, a burden with, a, with another brother or sister, um, you are welcome to come on up, uh, grab the elements, take it to uh, the table, consume it, and then we will uh, close out uh, with a couple of songs of praise.